This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, February 9th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, county moves forward on Down Valley Trail. Real estate market in golden handcuffs. Longtime pastor Pat Bailey announces retirement and a mountain weather forecast. But first, avalanche mitigation will take place east of Telluride on Monday, February 12th, beginning around 3.30 p.m. Beginning Sunday, the 11th at 3 p.m., the highway past the Lone Cone Cemetery will be closed to all non-local traffic in preparation. It will remain closed until roughly 5.30 p.m. on Monday the 12th. Wouldn't it be great if there was a trail connecting all the communities down valley, stretching up to Ilium and potentially to Telluride? Well, that was the question before the county commissioners this week. Their answer was yes, but with some conditions. So this would be a three-mile stretch that would extend from the county's Down Valley Park in Placerville up to uh, the the county's M59 River Trail, which is in Sawpit. This is a project that has been discussed for several years, and it was sort of one of those can we or can't we. So um, the county just wanted to take proactive steps in acquiring some grant funding to conduct this feasibility study to see whether or not it, you know, a trail like this is uh, feasible and possible. That's County Parks Director Janet Kask discussing the Down Valley Connector Trail, as the possible project is called. The study conducted by the county came up with a potential path forward for the path, which would be wedged into a narrow corridor running along Highway 145. Scott Bellinger, an engineer with the planning firm OTAC, says they looked at various possible routes. What we ended up with is deciding to keep the trail on the south side of the highway from one end to the other. We did look at locating the the trail on adjacent public lands on the BLM property or whatnot, uh, further away from the highway. But the uh, topographic challenges were just way too significant to to think about trying to create a accessible trail. The study took up other questions. Should the surface be paved? Should the trail be eight feet wide and ADA accessible, safe for two lanes of bikers and walkers? Should it just be a four-foot gravel recreational trail? Here's Cask. You know, I think what would help is, you know, we go back to the community again, because, you know, some of them were concerned about not just the overall impact, but just staying true to the character of the corridor, not only from trail width, but to trail surface. So I think, you know, now that we have our findings, we go back to the community, the residents, And, um, you know, we just check in with them again and present them with the alternatives and uh, see what their preferences are. A wider paved trail, which could serve a wider number of uses and people, would have greater grant opportunities, even if it's more difficult to squeeze into the challenging topography. The county would be able to save some money by using gravel instead of pavement, but counters Ballinger. Savings are not that significant considering that much of the cost is associated with retaining walls and work zone traffic control and, you know, grading and things that would be the same whether whether the uh, surface is concrete or, or gravel. Those impacts to traffic and the expense of installing big concrete barriers and retaining walls are not insignificant. 
In their report, OTAC finds, quote, lane closures, flaggers, and extensive use of traffic control devices should be expected throughout construction, unquote. The duration could be weeks or months for each trail segment, and there are five trail segments in total. Commissioners agree they'd like to move forward, but want to begin with a phased approach, installing just one segment of trail at a time. And they want to begin further down valley, in order to better connect those neighborhoods, parks, and businesses. As for what the trail will look like, here's Commissioner Ann Brown. My initial gut says the four-foot trail with the crushed gravel surface, particularly recognizing it would be a seasonal trail, Um, I definitely would like to hear from the community down Valley what their preference is. On that note, the county's next step is to hold a series of planning sessions down Valley in collaboration with area residents. Telluride Real Estate exists in a glossy never-never land. The images lining office windows on Main Street and the magazine ads all glow rich with mountain vistas, exclusive amenities, and price tags to match. The industry accounts for a significant chunk of the money which passes through the region. The town of Telluride alone collected almost $6.8 million from its 3% real estate transfer tax in 2023, money which is directed to town's general fund. In San Miguel County, according to data provided by Telluride consultants, the total sales volume for 2023 was over $850 million, the fourth highest year on record. Additionally, the average price per sale has continued to creep up. However, 2023 saw a decline in the number of properties changing hands, and there are few homes currently for sale in San Miguel County. To contextualize the numbers and reflect on the year in real estate that was, I spoke with a number of area brokers. Lars Carlson has been in the business since 1989. He says the market has been experiencing a sort of pandemic hangover as prices refuse to come down from the buying frenzy. Sellers are still kind of in that mindset that we have COVID pricing and that's where pricing is from what they've seen in the newspapers or what their friends sold their place for. I think we need to see pricing for older product go down, you know, five to 10% more before people see that as a value and, and are willing to go through the process. Carlson recalls a similar effect in the aftermath of the Great Recession. For years prior, home prices had been high, high, high. Then the financial crisis hit in 2008. And so the market lagged incredibly, slowed down dramatically. And then in 2009, people had waited a year and they're like, all right, what's it going to take to sell my property? And that's when buyers came out because they were value shopping. I think we're seeing, we'll see a similar situation like that now, because I think you'll see people finally go, all right, what's it going to take? As sellers begin to offer properties at a more moderate price point, Carlson speculates, homes will again begin to move. Looking around at the scarce options to buy a house in Telluride, another longtime area broker, Jim Lucarelli, also has the Great Recession on the mind. He recalls the long road back from the housing crisis. Uh, We started chugging out of the recession in about 2013. So to just sort of put the inventory aspect in perspective, at the end of the calendar year in 2013, just in the county, San Miguel County, there were 1,300 properties in the Telluride MLS uh, at the end of 
2023, there were just under 300 properties in the Telluride MLS. So that's, what, an 80% swing in terms of inventory. The MLS is the multiple listing service, a database which collects all the available homes for sale in a given area. Lucarelli's point is there aren't many houses for sale right now. What does this lack of inventory mean for area brokers? I, I don't know what it means, but it's not good. If there's 200-something in realtors in town and there's only 280 listings in the county, I don't know. Does that mean everybody's going to sell one home this year? Yeah, I, I don't know. Eva Hild is a broker and president of the Telluride Realtors Association, a local professional group. She says homes are continuing to sell when they come on the market, as long as they're moving ready. It seems like buyers are shying away from properties that need a lot of work. Part of that is the perception that contractors are not as available, and it's obviously difficult to complete any remodel. The segment um, within $1 million, that's where we see a lot of activities as well, because This just seems to be the most attainable price point. Many of those million-dollar transactions, says Hild, are condominiums in Mountain Village or farther afield, a larger home in Ridgeway. Properties in Norwood are trading, she says, for around half a million. In those outlying communities, customers tend to be locals, many of them first-time home buyers. I wonder, what's it like to secure a home in this crazy market? I would say that it's not as difficult as some people perceive it. I think it's doable, and we do it over and over again. TAR maintains a fund for first-time homebuyers to assist with broker fees and other costs of purchasing. Three or four times a month, the association works with a buyer dipping into that fund, says Hild. Um, So those are a lot of people that have found a way to purchase their first home locally. What will it take to goose the market back into action? Lucarelli says many folks in Telluride have secured a record low interest rate from purchasing a home a few years ago before the Federal Reserve dramatically increased the cost of borrowing money in response to inflation. Now, with few affordable properties on the market and mortgages costing more, People are happy to stay put. The term being applied is called golden handcuffs. So where a family might normally have raised a family um, at a house in Telluride, they might downsize and go to a condo or downsize and maybe move down valley. And people are staying still. People are stagnant because they're in those low interest rates. What does all this mean for the average Joe? Who's to say? But Telluride's identity as a high-value market, a stunning destination, and an amenity-rich community is unlikely, says Lucarelli, to change. And the amount of money coming to Telluride is just staggering. Another year of buying and selling awaits. Pat Bailey has been pastor at the Christ Church here in Telluride for the past 15 years. This winter, he announced Easter Sunday will be his last, leading the congregation. Bailey stopped by Kodo to discuss his years as pastor, his spiritual background, and his time working as a chaplain in the U.S. Army. Bailey begins recalling his first time he came to Telluride, the day he and his wife moved. I was still in the Army as a chaplain. We were living up in uh, Alaska at uh, Fort Richardson. And uh, so we flew down and rented a car in Durango and drove up. And um, 
So we started um, in October. Um, the story I often tell is we, as we were driving up, we stopped at Lizard Head Pass and got out, and Deb and I were both crying. It was so beautiful. And uh, so our first impression of this region and of Telluride was always positive, and it's been positive ever since. Yeah. So you've been working in the Army, and uh, how how'd you find Telluride? <laughs> how did you come um, to Colorado, and what was it like to kind of do the interview? Actually, I was in Iraq at the time, so I was in a telephone tent full of soldiers talking to their lovers, and I'm doing a job interview for <laughs> for a church to be a pastor. And at that point, they had already been in the process for about a year and a half, and it was still going to be about a year, over a year, before I'd retire from the Army. So they said that they couldn't wait that long, you know. So then when I got back, I started applying at different uh, uh, churches and all while I was still in Alaska. And I saw that this position was still open. Uh, so I gave them a call, and, uh, and they invited me down, and uh, we came and interviewed. You know, they're more, much more of a progressive congregation, and I'm very much a progressive minister and uh, an inclusive minister. So it's just been a great uh, community uh, fit for me and them, I think. Yeah. Cool. Could you talk a little more about that, um, just the church community and kind of the tradition of inclusivity? You know, we we're not against anybody. We're <laughs> we're we're for folks, you know, and a lot of our folks drew, grew up in very conservative uh, places, like I did, and um, a lot of them had given up on you know religion, and they found that in our community they could have a conversation, and nobody was going to tell them this is exactly how you have to think, or do, or be, and so uh, they found a place where they can uh, reinvigorate their spiritual life. On that note, um, take take me into your spiritual background. What what were your first encounters with uh, the church? I got involved with the Christian community actually in Spain. Um, I was a uh, Air Force uh, um, airman before I was in the Army, uh, and I was part of a uh, Christian servicemen center. But it was very fundamentalist. It was very evangelical, and it was also Pentecostal. But it did offer me a new. Um, a new kind of look at faith and a new um, surrendering of myself um, in that sense. Around that time, Bailey suffered a relatively serious injury during a training which sidelined his army career. In the meantime, he recalls, I went to Germany and there was a set of uh, books that a Catholic chaplain had left a couple of years before and they had not been able to get in touch with them or anything. They said, if anybody wants these books, you can have them. And so I took all the books home. They were all the great classics of the Christian spirituality, St. John of the Cross, um, Teresa of Avila, um, Thomas Merton. You know, it was just amazing. And, you know, I was in a kind of funky place because of my injuries and all that kind of stuff. And um, those really reassured me that this was part of the spiritual uh, path that often uh, precedes um, out of injury or hurt or, you know, things that happen in our lives. And so from then, I began studying uh, the Christian uh, mystics and the Christian uh, spiritual teachers. And that's when I, you know, went to pursue further degrees, postgraduate uh, degrees, um, related to those things. And once you were, you know, were fully an Army chaplain, how was that? What was that work like? You know, I, I really felt a call to that, and I really felt a, um, 
just uh, I thought it was a great ministry. You know, chaplain ministry is mostly a ministry of presence. It's just being where the soldiers are, um, being willing to share their hardships and share the danger uh, as well, um, and being present to them. And that's very much my sense of how God is present, you know, not intervening and, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so so for people who are hearing this um, and going, oh, no, Pat's leaving. Uh, <laughs> well, there may be some other <laughs> responses yeah. as well. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, what lies ahead for you? I have to stay away from the church for a period of time because we got to, the next person needs a chance to establish themselves without the old guy being hanging around, you know. And um, But eventually I'll be able to come back and we'll certainly continue to participate in the church community here. And, um, yeah, we're going to be in Rico. I've had a house out there for 14 years, and uh, it's a cozy place for Deb and I to, to settle down. And so I'm looking forward to that. That was Pat Bailey reflecting on his spiritual life and career. Bailey's last day leading the Telluride Christ Church will be March 31st, Easter Sunday. Raising a child can be a huge joy. It can also be impressively challenging. Parenting can be very isolating. So we just want the community to know that we are here for support and here to help people connect. That's Madeline Tengue, Family Support Specialist at Bright Futures, a local nonprofit supporting families and kids. This week, Bright Futures, in collaboration with the Wilkinson Public Library, will host a Healthy Child, Healthy Family event focused on families with children 0 to 3. The event will include brunch, yoga, first aid, and CPR lessons for infants and toddlers, and a raffle with prizes. But Melissa Sumter, Early Literacy Coordinator at Wilkinson Public Library, says the main aim is to get different families into the same room. It's an important part of building community because you're getting to know other people around you who might be going through a similar experience. Um, but you just haven't had the space and time to connect. So we're kind of creating a container where families can come together and celebrate the process of being a parent and celebrate being together with family and also learning who out there is part of their support system beyond what they may know. The Healthy Child, Healthy Family event will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Sunday, February 11th from 10 a.m. to noon before the library opens to the public. What do you do with all this snow? Plow it, of course. The town of Telluride is announcing its parking lot snow removal schedule for the coming weeks. Next Tuesday, the 13th, Public Works will clear the Entrada and Longwell lots. The Shandoka lot is up next. Plowing operations on the north side will take place on February the 16th and the south side on Tuesday, February 20th. Snow clearing runs from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. Public Works requests you move your vehicle before plowing operations begin. Please view the full schedule at bit.ly slash tot streets. Last month, the Denver Art Museum removed a case of ceramics from display after federal regulations changed regarding the possession of Native American artifacts. 
For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has more. Three ceramics and an incised shell gorget, a type of necklace, were removed from a case in the Denver Art Museum. The artifacts had been on display for about a year. The items were removed after new federal regulations went into effect regarding the Native American Graves Protections and Repatriation Act. The act mandates the return of hundreds of thousands of indigenous artifacts that are in museums and universities across America. Recent updates to the act mandate that items cannot be on display without permission from the tribes. The museum has followed guidelines on Native American artifacts since 1990, but decided to remove the Mississippian and Caddoan ceramics out of an abundance of caution. They say they will consult with the more than 30 tribes who claim descent from those two cultures before displaying the items again. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The controversial Uinta Basin Railway project facing cross-country opposition has been derailed once again by a recent federal decision. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KDNK's Amy Haddon Marsh reports on what is next. We're happy that we won this battle in court, but the war continues. That's Ted Zukoski, attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. The fight he's talking about is against the proposed Uinta Basin Railway, or UBR, which would have hauled Uinta Basin crude oil to loadout facilities in Utah to ship through Colorado to Gulf Coast refineries. The center, Eagle County, the city of Glenwood Springs, and other counties and municipalities in Colorado won a 2022 lawsuit last August contesting the initial approval of the UBR by the Federal Surface Transportation Board and the accompanying U.S. Fish and Wildlife Biological Opinion. A federal appeals court judge ruled against an appeal in December of last year which meant that the board's approval and the biological opinion have officially been vacated. Utah's Ashley National Forest in July 2023 approved a right-of-way for a portion of the proposed railway through a roadless area. But earlier this month, the Forest Service withdrew the permit. It's pretty much just a recognition by the Forest Service that when they made a decision that relied upon an environmental impact statement and the biological opinion, If they rely on those documents, they can't anymore because those documents have been vacated. In an emailed statement to KDNK, Don Jock, the acting public affairs officer for the Ashley National Forest, said, quote, due to the Surface Transportation Board's environmental impact statement and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's biological opinion being vacated by the court, and the Forest Service reliance on these analyses, our record of decision to grant the right-of-way was withdrawn, end quote. He added that the Surface Transportation Board will work directly with project proponents to determine the next steps, and that the Ashley National Forest will continue to consider right-of-way requests in the future. UBR proponents and opponents have been waiting for the Forest Service decision for months, Conservation groups Colorado Rising and 350 Roaring Fork have held protests in Glenwood Springs over the past two years, including a flotilla on the Colorado River last summer. Kate Bave is an organizer for Colorado Rising. 
just because we see that one step gets denied doesn't mean that the fight is over. As much as this is a win, it's still important to stay vigilant and say, we do not want this ever. So we will continue to keep fighting as long as we see that they keep trying to push this. The fight isn't over. Three transloading facilities in the Price Helper area are looking at expansions in order to handle more crude oil coming from the Uinta Basin. The waxy crude is currently transported by truck, which was one of the reasons behind creating a railway to get the crude out of the basin. Trucking the crude north to Salt Lake City or west to the transloading facilities takes longer and uses narrow state highways, which can be hazardous. Producers want to increase the volume coming out of the Uinta Basin to 100,000 barrels a day, which, according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, means tripling the amount of tanker trucks on Utah roads. It's a dramatic increase. It is evidence that they're, you know, they're moving on to Plan B and uh, that they are desperately trying to get more oil out of the basin and into the markets away from Salt Lake, which is the only place they can get them to now. But Salt Lake City refineries are capped at around 83,000 barrels per day of Uinta Basin crude due to air quality concerns. So if they want to increase the amount of oil they're pumping, they got to figure out another way to get it to market, which is why they need the Uinta Basin Railway, which is why they need these loadouts. All that will require uh, approval by the Utah Division of Air Quality with some oversight from the federal EPA. The Wildcat loadout facility is undergoing an analysis by the Bureau of Land Management, but it's not certain how extensive that analysis will be. Environmental groups and elected officials have written letters to the BLM urging the agency to conduct a full analysis for the project. For KDNK News, I'm Amy Haddon Marsh. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for scattered snow tonight with a low around 10 degrees. There's an 80% chance of precipitation on Saturday with 1 to 3 inches of fresh snow possible. The high is near 25. Saturday night should be calm and mostly cloudy with a low near 5 degrees. Expect sun to return on Sunday when the high is near 30, followed by a clear night with a low around 10. This has been the news for Friday, February 9th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hey there, this is Mary from the Telluride Historical Museum with your Miner's Minutes for February 7th, 2024. If you haven't made it up the hill yet this winter season, check out our current exhibit, Festival Capital of the Rockies, 50 Years of Festivals in Telluride. Come and discover the answers to all the questions you have and more regarding our festivals in the Weatherford Gallery. This exhibit will be open until we close for the off-season in April, so don't miss out. The Telluride Historical Museum is seeking a friendly, outgoing, and engaging individual to serve as a Visitor Services Coordinator. The Visitor Services Coordinator works at the museum's front desk and provides all services associated with front desk responsibilities, including greeting and orienting guests upon arrival, taking payment for admission, gift shop sales, answering questions during guest visits, and restocking gift shop inventory. This is a part-time role starting immediately, specifically scheduled for Saturdays during the winter season, with opportunities to work more during the summer season. And now a brief Telluride tale. This account comes from a recent guest who visited our museum with a family story regarding his grandpa. 
Trying to discern fact from fiction, we did a little bit of research to learn more about his family history. And here's an excerpt from one of the news articles that we found confirming the family story. Camilo Nardelli, a miner employed at the Liberty Bell Mine, while attempting to get on his horse and ride to the mine to work on Tuesday night about 9 o'clock, scared the horse before he had mounted it, and after he had one foot in the stirrup, away went the horse from the Midway Saloon on South Spruce Street. He ran up Spruce nearly two blocks, turned into East Columbia Avenue, and ran up the avenue to a point near Alder Street, dragging the man as he went, until at the junction of Alder, Camillo turned over on his face and his foot was dislodged from the stirrup and he fell to the ground, a bruised and bleeding mass of humanity, more dead than alive. He was thought to be killed when he was picked up, but he is still alive and feeling much better now. Fortunately for him, he did not sustain a fractured bone, but was badly bruised all over. Unless complications set in, the man will get well. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Telluride truly was a part of the wild, wild west. Our 2024 daffodil days are almost here again. Pre-sales begin online February 19th. Place your orders early and get a discounted price of $12 a bundle or purchase them on Main Street at the community table from our regular dates of March 11th to 15th and up at the museum for bundles in person at the regular price at $15 a bundle. All proceeds benefit the Telluride Historical Museum and the American Cancer Society. A reminder of our hours. We are open for the winter season Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with last entries at 4.30 p.m. And remember, Saturdays are always free for locals. Kids scavenger hunts are also available, so be sure to bring your littles. Also be sure to check out our gift shop for some items that are on sale. We have brand new inventory including gems, toys, games, and vintage-inspired jewelry and accessories as well. If you have any additional questions, feel free to call the museum at 970-728-3344 or email info at telluridemuseum.org. We look forward to hearing from you. And we hope to see you up the hill on First Street soon or follow us on social media to keep in touch with what's up up at the museum. Thanks, Goto. You're a medium rare. Well done. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.